joy in worship. Joy in worship. Great joy is found. Now, this is actually a three-point message. We'll see that as we go today. Each stands, if you're, in most of your Bibles, it divides the psalm into three paragraphs. And that's the three points, really. But the one thing I hope you take home with you this morning is great joy is found in letting God be God and worshiping him. Many times we we rob ourselves of joy because we try to take God's place or we try to do God's job. But there is a great joy in understanding that we come together to worship him and let God be God and worship and ascribe to him the glory that he's due. Now, likely this is a post-exile psalm. It was written after Israel had returned to the promised land after time and again having to been punished for their sins, taken into exile and things like that. And I'll explain why I see that in this psalm as we go this morning. It is not a psalm of David, uh, although there is some pulling from some psalms that David wrote. Uh, It's likely one that was written many years later when the people would come together once again in in the temple to worship the Lord, who had repeatedly, time after time, forgiven them and delivered them. It's a psalm that acknowledges God is just that. He is God. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is above all the earth. He is in control. Some people believe that to pray God, your will be done, that that's somehow wrong, perhaps even blasphemous in some way, either because they don't understand the true greatness, the true glory of God, or because they're simply selfish. Pelagius was that sort of guy. If you've ever studied church history or you've ever read about him, Pelagius was a British theologian from the late 300s, early 400s. And he was someone who thought that, not, that God did not necessarily deserve all the glory. I was explaining this to someone earlier today as, as Pelagius was, was growing in fame. He'd come to debate a man by the name of Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. Many of you are familiar with Augustine. I see you quote him on Facebook and things like that sometimes. And as Augustine would lay the foundation for John Calvin's work and his soteriology, and, and we'll, we won't get into all that stuff today, Pelagius somewhat did for Joseph Arminius years later. But the ideal was Pelagius believed even more than God, man's will reigned. The, the Pelagius believed that we deserved a stake in his divinity, in a sense. He believed that to pray, thy will be done, was greatly bad. It was wrong. It was horrible to pray such a thing. He believed that our faith was like a joystick that operated the God crane that picked up what we wanted and would drop off. You know, you've seen those things in, in restaurants and Buffalo Wild Wings and places like that. That's a modern example or explanation of how Pelagius believed our faith should work in prayer, that God was somehow susceptible to our will versus the other way around. Now, some forms of Pelagianism, uh, Pelagianism exist even today. Semi-Pelagianism is a, is a word that often gets thrown out. The belief, and we see this in Disney, by the way, the belief that man is inherently good and we should just follow our hearts, follow our will, our wants. That's Pelagianism. Scripture is very clear. We shouldn't do that. The heart is deceitful above all things, said Jeremiah. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, said Paul. To say we're without sin is to make God a liar, said John. But we still see this stuff. We see this Pelagianism was about glorification of self, 
and worshiping self. And if I am in Christ, whatever sin I do is, is okay because I'm still in Christ. I can get away with this stuff because I'm holy now and I'm, I'm good. And, and we see that too in, in some churches, this asceticism or antino, uh, antinomianism is another term that's being thrown out. And these are all things nobody really cares about, but it is something we see taking place in the church. We see it in some worship music, in this idea of meology, what I get from God, what God is here to do for me. And that's a problem. That's something that is Pelagius still infecting the church, or at least it has its roots in him. And that's not what scripture teaches us. Scripture is very clear that we are to submit to God. We are to glorify him. We are to let him rule and not us and let joy flow from our worship of him. Now, like I said, this is a three-point sermon, sort of, uh, in that the first passage, the first uh, verses one through three, talk about worshiping God for who he has been and what he has done. The second stanza, verses four through six, is telling us we should worship God for who he is and what he's currently doing in the world today and the world around us. And it'll wrap up with this, the idea of who God will forever be and what he will eventually do and how he will reign for eternity future. Now, if you read the Psalms a lot and you've studied the Psalms, you'll notice a parallel between Psalm 98 and Psalm 96. So you may ask, well, why did pastor decide to go with Psalm 98 over this other Psalm when that was probably the original? Well, the idea is the psalmist who wrote Psalm 98 probably did use Psalm 96, and this is the remix in a sense, in that he's writing this in a sense, knowing that the Messiah is coming. His emphasis isn't just on singing a new song for God because God is so great, but because he sees the idea of salvation coming through the Messiah, through the promised Holy One of God. And ultimately, the message is very clear that we should let him be God, let him be sovereign, submit to him, and joyfully worship him. So we begin back in verse 1. It says, Sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done wondrous deeds. His right hand and his holy arm have worked out his salvation. Sing to Yahweh. Well, sing to the Lord, most of your Bibles probably say. right? And I touched on this a few weeks back. The idea of the Lord, that is an English tradition. Uh, sorry, English translation that follows a Jewish tradition around the name of God. Uh, in English, if you see the word Yahweh written out, it's typically just Y-H-W-H with no vowels. And I want to explain that because I, since I have been using the LSB translation more than I thought I would this, this past few months, uh, I want to get into that. When we look at the word Lord... In our Bibles, and we see that, uh, we understand that that is the name of God. I, I mentioned that, like I said. But that is a Jewish custom. That is something the Jewish people decided to do almost a century after the time of Jesus. When the disciples would talk about the Lord, they either meant Jesus himself, post-resurrection, or they were talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. They would, uh, the, later the, the Jewish culture would be that we don't pronounce the name of God. We don't want to do that. Yahweh. But this, this was not the case at the time of Jesus. It actually, like I said, it come about sometime later, they would just write Lord. And, and in fact, the, uh, the Hebrew letters are Yod-Heh-Wod-Heh. If you're taking notes and want to write that down, that's fun. I would just like to say it if I'm being honest. Y-H-W-H. 
Now, don't go into a Jewish store. If, you're gonna, if, you go into a, if you ever find one, if Fargo ever has a Jewish bookstore, don't go in there and say, I'm a Christian, I'm here for books on Yahweh. They won't like that, okay? They find that rude. It's their custom, it's their tradition. But as Christians, we're not under an obligation to carry that. It came about much later, like I said. Now, we say this word. We do. We use this word in our worship music. How many of you know the song, <clears throat> Forgive me, okay? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. You know that song? Jehovah is Yahweh. It's the same word. It's German. That's why it sounds weird, right? And some of you who know German, or or we all know somebody who normally sits over here, she's gone this week, who speaks fluent German, right? And if you've listened, if you've got a keen ear, you know that Yah sounds in German typically take a Ja form, right? And wa, vi, I, my, my youth pastor growing up, his dad was German. And this is how I learned. He didn't say Volkswagen. It was Volkswagen. Right? They get that mixed up. And so this Jehovah is actually the German sense of the word Yahweh. So when we say Jehovah, it's not. Now, listen, when you, if you want to say Jehovah, God's pretty smart. He knows who you're talking to. Okay, it's not, it's not that. Yahweh is more biblical accurate, but that's okay. It's kind of like when I went to Sri Lanka on my internship and the, the students who I taught, they would call me Brother Jeff. Brother Jeff, uh, what are we studying tonight? Well, my name is Jeff, but they would say Brother Jeff. That sounds like a type of peanut butter. Okay, it's not my name, but I knew who they were talking about. God's the same way, okay? Now, they would do this Later in Jewish traditions, they would take the word, the, the vowels from the word Adonai, and they would, which means my Lord, and they would write them under, in the Hebrew text, they would write them under the word Yahweh as a way to remind the reader, don't pronounce this name. Instead, use uh, either the word Hashem, which means the name, or Adonai, which means my Lord. But they, the, the Jewish people say, don't say Yahweh. Now, when the English translators came along, they followed that tradition and they put Lord in there. That's, but the, that becomes a problem, you see, because the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament alone. And Jesus said very clearly that it was used to describe him. When he quotes Psalm 110, he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, and he's referring to himself. Now, they, there, there becomes a controversy with that in, in their debate. Those who don't want to say Jesus called himself God, he very much does because he's calling himself Yahweh in that moment. But they would say, no, he's actually saying Adonai. That didn't happen in Scripture until about 900 years after Christ. So that's why when we read in a translation and it says Yahweh, or if we want to pray, oh, Yahweh, like the Scripture tells us to, it's not wrong. It's not bad. We're using the covenant name of God. It's how the disciples would pray. It's how Jesus would pray. So I just want to get that out of the way because I know sometimes people go, is he supposed to be saying that? Yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Um, so uh, the psalmist says we should sing to him, to sing to Yahweh a new song or a fresh song. 
This pulls us back to Psalm 96, like I said. Also, Psalm 33, verse 3 says, Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a loud shout. Other psalmists say this as well, Psalm 144, Psalm 149. But when John, the Apostle John, gets around to writing Revelation, all the things he knew and all the things he saw that were coming down the pipeline, so to speak, he sees this and he connects it back to the psalmist who wrote about singing a new song. It's the same idea. It is pointing both to the eternal past kingdom of God and the eternal kingdom that is coming of God. Both eternity past and eternity future. And he writes, they sang a new song, Revelation 5.9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Who's he talking about? Jesus. So we're supposed to sing a new song to Yahweh And then they sing a new song to Jesus. So what's that tell us? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Later in Revelation 14, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been purchased from the earth. The understanding is, if you are part of God's kingdom, if you are under his rule, then you sing the new song because you're no longer under his wrath. You're no longer under his judgment. The next line in Psalm 98 makes this very clear. He says, for he has done wondrous deeds. And this echoes Psalm 9, and I want to get into that a little bit. Psalm 9 says, I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. Wondrous deeds sometimes gets translated marvelous things. Well, what does the psalmist tell us are these wondrous deeds, these marvelous things? What are they that we're worshiping him? What are the things that he's done that we worship him for? Well, he tells us in Psalm 9.5, he says, You've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. Now, of course, this would call to mind for the the Hebrew reader the judgment that fell upon Egypt, the Canaanites, all the people who had opposed Israel, but God had somehow delivered them from, conquered them, and cast them down. His right hand, his holy arm, this speaks to the immeasurable power of God and his authority. Psalm 16, 8, I have set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Now you may notice a pattern developing within this psalm as you're reading it, as we're seeing it unfold. It's his hand, his wondrous deeds, his marvelous things, his arm. Worship is about him. We should understand that right out the gate. Worship is about him, not just what he's done, though that's what we're covering in the moment, but who he is, who he has been and who he will forever be. His right hand, his holy arm have worked out his salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his gift to give to us. Psalm 3, 8, Psalm 62, 1, Revelation 7, 10, all proclaim this. Salvation belongs to God. It is a gift that he offers us. Now here, this is where things get really interesting. And you guys know I like to dig into the Hebrew. I like to dig into the Greek and things like that. There's something very fascinating within this passage. Here, the word salvation is yushai. 
It's very similar, and I probably butchered the pronunciation of that, by the way, but it's very similar to another word that we'll get to in a second. But here, it means, it often gets translated salvation or help or victory. Victory implies judgment on the nations and salvation for Israel. It's as much a military victory as it is a spiritual victory. Victory over what the Apostle Paul refers to when he says, uh, when he talks about spiritual forces. For our struggle, it's Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We worship him because he has overcome them. He's defeated them. Christ overcomes them in the cross. In fact, in our study, what, what we're going to learn soon is that Christ's millennial reign following his, is, is following his victory over the nations. We see this in Zechariah 14 in the Old Testament. We see it in Revelation 19 in the New Testament, what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And if you came to our Revelation class last year or you've ever studied it, it is no battle at all. It is a complete slaughter. You see, the the enemy gathers his forces together at the Valley of Megiddo, and Jesus shows up and simply opens his mouth, and the fight's over. It's no battle. To be in Christ, you understand, is to be on the winning side, to be on the part of righteousness, goodness, holiness, and ultimate victory. And there is joy in that victory. How many of you feel good when you win? Nobody's raising their hands. Nobody's shouting. How many feel good when you win? You've got the victory. So you should have joy. And so we worship in our joy. How could we not praise him? You might say, well, that's a good sermon. I'm just getting started. That's verse one. Verse two says, Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. Now this is where the language gets really interesting. When he says made known in the Hebrew, it's the word yada. And it means simply he's revealed his salvation. If you were paying attention last week, you caught the Hebrew word that is used here for salvation. It's Yeshua. Well, who has that name? Jesus. We call him Jesus. But his name was Yeshua. His name was salvation. See, he's revealed his salvation and his name is Jesus. He's revealed his righteousness. Now here the word revealed is the word galah and it means he's uncovered his righteousness. Now you might ask, well, what's that really matter? Because God in his sovereignty always had righteousness, always had a plan, and it was kind of covered up. The Old Testament prophets knew something was coming. They didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. But when Yeshua, salvation, was revealed in a manger, his righteousness became clear. The, The curtain had been pulled back. In fact, eventually when it comes to its fulfillment, the curtain gets torn in half. In other words, he reveals the son, but his righteous plan is there all along, and it becomes so clear for those who are willing to see it. 
The psalmist is looking forward to that day, the day of Yeshua, the day of salvation, that day when God's full plan is revealed to all people, to the eyes of the nations. David wrote in Psalm 57, 9, I give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Why? Why would David say that? Because among all the people, among all the nations, he goes on, he says, your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the skies. Why does David feel moved to worship and sing and say, such things because David knew that Yeshua, that salvation, that Jesus was coming and his salvation was just down the road. And while David may not live to see it with his physical eyes, in faith he knew God's righteousness was unfolding and was going to be revealed to all the people. We go on in verse 3. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Yes, salvation is coming to Israel. And yes, the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This loving kindness, some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's the Hebrew word hased. And it means his loyal love. The ESV uh, translates it his steadfast love. His love does not run out. It is for all the earth. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's his love and his faithfulness. And when, it, when the psalmist talks about his faithfulness, he's talking about a, a covenantal faithfulness to the house of Israel, to those who, and, and it would fall to those of us who through Christ are grafted in to the house of Israel so that all the earth will see the salvation of our God. And one day, as Paul says, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and in those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's worship. That we are all at some point going to be forced to acknowledge him as our king and bow before him. See, church, there's joy in worshiping him. It's even more than just thanking him or acknowledging who he's been and what he's done, but trusting in his sovereign plan and his plan for us. How how can a Christian not have joy in their worship? We let God be God of our life and we worship him for who he is and who he's proved himself to be. Now in the next portion we read verses four through six, we're gonna really get the impression as we study that this is a command to worship God as our sovereign king. Not past tense, not just future tense, always present tense. He says, make a loud shout to Yahweh, all the earth, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Now this is one of my favorite verses because I have no musical talent at all. And if you read it in the right translation, it says, make a joyful noise. I can do that. It may sound like a coyote in a blender, but it's a joyful noise. My wife's in the back just grinning because she's heard that joke a thousand times, but... This idea of worshiping him as our king, not as, not as a king who was or a king who is to come, but as our king now. This begins in verse 4, but it, it comes to its climax in verse 6. And this section very much, it ties to a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, 
O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. And just for a second, who does that sound like? That sounds like a story for another holiday that's coming up, right? Put a little bookmark in your mind, Zechariah 9, 9. Or, or if you want to take time to find it in your Bible, maybe keep your finger there for a moment. Make a loud shout. Yeah, the king is coming. How do we not shout? How do we not get excited? You see some, I, I love to watch football, and I know that's, that's not everybody's cup of tea, but I'll tell you what, I see more excitement on the sidelines of a football game sometimes than we see in worship. Right? Thank you. <laughs> we see people excited to go watch the Jets lose. Then we get excited about Christ being our king. And I'm not putting down, if you like sports, if you're watching online you like sports, I'm not putting you down, okay? But where's the excitement for what matters? Where's the joy in what lasts for eternity? So often we don't want to make a loud shout. We don't want to worship with joy because we forget the king is coming. We forget the king is on his throne. We become preoccupied with our own thing and we don't want to make room for him in our lives. See, the nation of Israel did the same thing and they were looking for a coming king who'd come in on horseback slaughtering Romans, but he came in a manger and he died on a cross and they missed him. And they missed the mark. Church, the king is, the king is coming. And then one day that trumpet will sound and our hope is resting in his return and we don't want to miss it. We worship him in joy. We make a joyful noise. We shout to Yahweh, all the earth. When it says all the earth, that includes Lisbon, North Dakota, right? That includes Ransom County. That includes this state and this nation and us. We see echoes of Isaiah in this passage. It's one reason I think this is a post-exile. I mentioned this earlier. This is a post-exile psalm because Isaiah says, Shout for joy, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Make a loud shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his beautiful glory. And again, we see this idea of break forth. We see this in the psalm as well. Break forth. It means that underneath there is something bubbling. There is a joy. There is an anticipation. There's an excitement. And it's about to break. And when you come in on a Sunday morning, the dam should break and worship should break forth. Amen? We should get excited, shout, break forth, sing for joy, sing in praise. It's not, about, it's not about gathering attention to myself or to, to ourselves or to put on a performance or anything like that. It's about showing my adoration for my king. It's drawing attention to him, pointing others to the Lord. See, so many Christians don't have the joy bubbling up inside them because it's what they can get from worship. It's what God's done for me lately that should matter. And that's an unstable Christianity. That's an immature faith. Or maybe they've, they've spent so much time trying to be king of their own lives, trying to sit on the throne themselves and saying, when God does convict them or God speaks to them, no, thank you, God, I have this. You can, you can take the day off today. So many things influence our worship for the negative because we don't recognize him as our king. And we don't worship him as such. But when we let him be king, when we let him be the object of our worship, 
When we let the song break forth, worship, worshiping him in praise and in joy. Now the next verse, verse 5, says, Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of singing. Now I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this passage, but there is something I, I hope we catch. It ties into the next. This is actually kind of flowing. All four, five, and six flow together so well. But, but notice the instrument. Notice what he's praising with, the lyre and with singing. This is the worship of King David. This is the worship of the shepherd boy who would be the armor bearer to the king, who would slay a giant, who would lead the nation into battle. And David plays the same thing. It gets translated for David, it gets translated heart, but it's the same Hebrew word, kinor, if you're one of the kids taking notes this morning, kinor. And it's just a simple stringed instrument. The same word is used for lyre, same, same exact word. Now, it was used in temple worship, and we'll see that as we go. It was also used with the trumpets, the ram's horn, and so on. But it's a very simple thing. David sang with joy. I believe you read the Psalms, David sang with joy. Amen? And he played his harp. And what would happen in the presence of King Saul? The enemy would leave. The unclean spirit had, was driven out. See, I believe, church, whenever the church gathers together and we sing and we worship Yahweh as our king and we worship in joy, the enemy doesn't like to stick around. When we're singing, when we're lifting our voice, when we're making a, a joyful noise, the enemy wants to rob us of our joy, sidetrack us, bait us into something else. But what does Peter say? The apostle Peter, he says, be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In our worship, we should be sober-minded. We should be watchful, but that doesn't mean we can't be joyful. That doesn't mean we can't be excited. That doesn't mean we can't focus our praise on him. This is why what we sing matters. This is why the lyrics and our theology and our music matters. The enemy would love nothing more than to put the focus on ourselves, steal the joy of our worship. If, if it's puffing ourselves up, distracting us, giving us some emotional manipulation through the, the right-sounding music. There's one church, and I, I, I debated mentioning this today. There's one church, I'm not going to say their name, but it's a well-known fact. It's a documented fact that this church would use their congregation as a focus group of sorts, and they would... They're, they're one of those churches that puts out CDs, puts out music. And they would play the music in a certain way to get an emotional reaction from the people as they're singing. And they would hear this, they would see this, and if the people were like, oh, that was a good song, it didn't make the CD. But if the people were like, oh, that got me, Pastor, that was so good, on the CD. And we hear it on Caleb. Church, that's not worship. That's emotional manipulation that has no place in the church that worships Christ. Now, when we sing, we are singing to give to him, not get for ourselves. The more the worship is on us, the more the worship is on what I'm receiving rather than, rather than what I'm giving to God, the more the enemy, I believe, licks his chops because we become easy prey. I've said this before, many of you have heard me say this. The gifts don't intimidate Satan, the giver does. The power behind them does, and the power behind our worship 
And the focus of our worship is God himself. When we worship, we know who our focus is on and that it belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know who we're worshiping and we're worshiping him with joy and when we're doing that, the enemy cannot stand it. Verse six is with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a loud shout before King Yahweh. The trumpets are what's called the chatzosera. Good luck saying that, I got it right. These are usually a, a metallic straight trumpet, if I remember correctly, and they're used for instruments of the, of the feast, for sounding the alarm when the enemy is near, and for sacrificial rites. That was their original purpose. It had nothing to do with worship. The horn, the shofar, many of you have seen the shofar in my office. By the way, if you follow the church on Instagram, you've learned I can, I can play the shofar a little bit, kind of. I'm not a jazz musician on it, but I can let out a good blast. Um, but the ram's horn was used as a declaration of war for proclamation of the king, and get this, for demonstrations of joy. You understand David took these things and he brought them into the temple as he's preparing the building of the temple for Solomon. David gets everything laid out for Solomon and he institutes these things as instruments of worship. In fact, he gets all the Levites together and they're worshiping before God and it says uh, a bunch of names, First Chronicles 16.5, but also says they used other musical instruments, harps, lyres, and the loud sounding cymbals. Can you imagine just in, in worship this morning if Georgette was just banging some cymbals together, right, as we're singing? That, well, you may not find that good, but the, the Hebrew people did. Why? It was the instruments of their day. And they took these things. They were used for warcraft. They were used for, for all these other, for sacrifices. And David says, no, we can also use them for worship because they're, they're for God. Therefore, God's purposes. God had instituted these things for these purposes. And so he takes them in and he says, let's use them for worship. And verse 6 ends again. It says, make a loud shout. Make a joyful noise before King Yahweh. If he's your king, you have a shout. If he's your king, your worship should be bubbling underneath at all times. Your praise, your, your glorifying him should come as naturally as breaking forth in breath, in breathing. There's a great joy in just letting him rule, letting him be king, letting him run things and saying, you know what, Lord, I step back, I trust you. You are God, I am not, and I just, I want you to reign in my life. And there is a great joy to come from that. And finally, we begin the third stanza, verse seven, the future things. He says, let the sea roar as well as its fullness the world and those who dwell in it now this is this is pretty incredible if you pay attention and you look at the first line of each one of these paragraphs what does it say it says sing it says shout it says roar there's an escalation the closer we get to the judgment of god the closer we get to the coming of our king the louder our worship should be the more intense, the more passionate our worship ought to be. You see that taking place in the passage. You think our worship is meant to be quiet? Oh, come, oh, ye No. Shout to the king. Let it be a roar. The, the verbs, they grow louder. It's bigger. He says, let the sea roar. Now, if you've, if you've ever been to the ocean and you've heard the waves crashing again and again because of the weather, you, you've heard the ocean roar. But this is slightly different. In fact, this is somewhat different. The sea here would call to mind the Mediterranean. 
or at least like a local sea where uh, Jonah's great fish lived, where the, the sea monster that Job calls Rahab lived, where the sea dragon called Leviathan lives. It was a place where storms would come up almost unannounced, where winds would toss ships back and forth. It was a place of chaos, a place of constant turmoil. And yet the sea also will focus its worship of Yahweh as well as its fullness. That's everything it encompasses is roaring forth in praise. This echoes Psalm 96, of course. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, as well as its fullness. Psalm 93, 4 also says, More than the voices of many waters and the mighty breakers of the sea, Yahweh is on high, is mighty. The sea and all the life within it roar for God our King. And as I read this, I had this thought, and you can do with it what you like. Maybe I think it's good, uh, but this, was, <laughs> this is an original thought. Out of the chaos comes worship. Think about that. Out of all the chaotic things that happen, how many of you this week has been pretty chaotic? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want somebody. Okay, go ahead and raise your hand. (laughs) This week's been chaotic. This month, this past month has been chaotic. This past year, the past two years, right? Yet out of that can come worship. Sunday mornings can be pretty chaotic. Ask my wife, getting three kids ready by herself every, every week. But out of the chaos, our worship should roar. As also the world, it says the Hebrew word world there is the land. It's, it's the Hebrew word tevel. It means the inhabited world. All the world will roar in worship. Church, that's not a whoo. It's not a holler. It's a thunderous proclamation. Yahweh is king. And we, we sit back and say, mm, okay. Right? No, it's not meant to be that. It doesn't matter where we were. It doesn't matter where we've been or what we're coming from. Yahweh is king and we roar in our worship. He's not just the king now. He's always been king. We will sing forever as he reigns as king forevermore. The psalmist goes on. He says, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. And you might read that and go, "Mm, rivers don't have hands. That doesn't make sense. The writer is taking something. It's a literary device. He's personifying something that's inanimate, and he's giving it human features. We see this all throughout Scripture to illustrate a point. Psalm ninety-three, three: The rivers have lifted up, O Yahweh. The rivers have lifted up their voice. The rivers lift up their pounding waves. The Apostle Paul does this. Romans eight twenty-two: For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The psalmist says to even let the mountains. Sing together, which seems to be quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in a joyful shouting, O mountains, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Jesus does this. Remember I said, bookmark Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus comes into the town riding on a donkey, and people are shouting and worshiping him as Yahweh, as the coming king. And the Pharisees can't stand it. They're pulling their hair out. The people are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees can't stand it. They go to Jesus. They say, tell him to knock it off. 
They're not supposed to do that. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the rocks would even cry out. The stones would cry out. He's referring to uh, something John the Baptist said in Habakkuk 2.11. But what the point he is making is we can worship him in joy or we can miss the opportunity to do so. And if we miss it, if need be, even the rocks will cry out and proclaim him as Yahweh God. In the coming of Christ, the final judgment, all creation joins together to worship him as king. Verse 9 says, before Yahweh, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And that's our last verse. But we compare this back to Psalm 96. It says, before Yahweh, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with his faithfulness. Very similar passage. He came, but he's coming again. And he's going to judge the whole earth. In fact, Revelation speaks this. Revelation 20. I want to read this to you. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And... The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You understand, he is going to judge. He's going to judge the world, but he does it in righteousness. The word used is sedek. It means he judges with accuracy. He judges with what is correct, what is right, what is honest, what is true. And he judges with equity, says the psalmist. The Hebrew word is mesharim, and it means with fairness and integrity. By what standard does he, of all people, who does he think he is, right? By what standard does he judge us? If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. How do you get your name written in the book of life? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died for your sins and rose from the grave. It's that simple. But it's so much deeper. And it's so much greater. If, they were not, if their name was not written in the book of life, they're thrown to the lake of fire. You know, John the Baptist says something, and sometimes it gets misrepresented, taken out of context. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we look at that many times, we say, well, the fire is a good thing. It is if you're in Christ. That's the fire of judgment. The very next thing out of his mouth, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his, his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. The fire he's talking about is the fire of judgment. It's the fire of wrath. And it is a consuming fire that waits for those who do not follow Christ, who do not pick up their cross daily and follow after him. And I don't say that today as a scare tactic. I don't say that as a, a way to, to push people. It is a warning and it has to be said. God is fair. God is love, absolutely. But God is also just. And many of you have heard me say this. He can be neither of those things if he is not both of those things. 
You see, the king had a standard. He set the standard in the garden. They had one rule to follow. One thing. They didn't just don't eat the fruit. And they couldn't follow that, so he gave them ten commandments on tablets of stone. And while he's literally writing with his own finger on the, hand, on, the, on the tablets of stone at the base of the mountain, they're breaking the very first one. And so he gives them all the law. And nobody could pass those. Nobody could keep all of that. That's impossible. But it was a guide. It was a mile marker to help keep people on the right path until someone named Christ, someone Strong named Jesus came and was enough to fulfill every requirement and fulfill every law until he could come. And last week we celebrated, he came in a manger and he took the punishment of the law for, him, for us upon himself. You see, that's God's justice poured out upon himself because of his love. God is love, but God is also just. And because Jesus died on the cross, he has been, always is, and always will be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Yahweh, God. He rose from the grave and proved who he was, that he is the only one worthy of our worship, the only one worthy of our praise, the only one worthy of glory. And so we sing, and we shout, and we roar in worship. And we do it with joy because he's just, because he's good, because he loves us. When we let God be God and we worship him, there is such a joy to be had. I'm going to move to close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And, and we play music at the end of the service, not for emotional manipulation, but because we're going to sing a song. We're going to worship together today as we close. And we're going to continue to play because it's nice to have some music in the background, but it is not meant in that way. One of my favorite quotes is, he is God and I am not. You see, my salvation, my hope, my healing, my future doesn't rest on me. It rests in the hands of the King of Kings. There's only so much I can do, but many times what I've learned is if I can just say, Lord, I trust you. I'm stepping back. I'm letting go. My life is yours. I find the greatest joy in stepping back for a moment and just watching him work. Let God be God and worship him. Don't let go of your faculties. Be sober-minded, but at the same time, let go of all you're trying to control and say, God, you know what? I trust you and you alone. Jesus, I trust you. You're in control and I worship you. Too often we want to sit on the throne we want, because we want the win, right? We want the victory for ourselves. We want to fix the situation because if we're honest, then we receive the worship. Then we receive the glory. And that's our own insecurities at work within us. So many Christians worship without joy because their worship depends on them. I love how one pastor said, a lady came to him after church one Sunday and said, Pastor, I want you to know I hated worship today. It was awful. And he looked at her and said, that's great. We weren't here to worship you at all. And we get that way, don't we? Worship was dry. Who made it dry? You did. It's on you. Worship is on Christ. And that, that can't be dry. That can't be boring. That can't be something that's not exciting and ready to break forth out of us if we truly trust him and have our faith in him. See, I didn't come to church today to sing about me or hear how great I am. I came to worship my Savior and my King and to build up other believers and be 
built up by them. If we're, that's what the church does. That's what we should do. When we worship together, when we're doing this, right, it's not the God of me that's worshiped, but we glorify the one who deserves it. We're going to ask the worship team to go ahead and lead us in one more song and we'll close in prayer. And if, if you're here and, and maybe you don't have a good relationship with Christ and you want one and you want to be able to, to worship in joy, the altars will be open. We'll pray after, after the song, but the, we'll keep that open as well.